really don't understand, do you? Hey, man, don't you realize not for us to make this thing work, man? We've got to get rid of the pimps and the pushers and the prostitutes and then start all over again clean. Hey, look, nobody's pushing me anyway, okay? I mean, not you, not the cops, nobody, man. I mean, you want to get rid of the pushers, I'll help you. But don't send your people after me. Oh, come on, John. Can't you see that we can't get rid of one without getting rid of the other? We got to come down on both of them at the same time in order for this whole thing to work for the people. Hey, look, nobody's closing me out of my business. In 1971, black exploitation exploded onto the scene with the film Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song and Shaft. This led to a series of movies that featured African-American actors in lead roles and often having anti-establishment plots. These movies were frequently condemned for stereotypical characterization and the glorification of violence. But audiences loved them for their portrayal of powerful black protagonists, even if they were usually pimps, drug dealers, and hitmen. Hollywood would learn to love them too as these films made tons of money with low production costs. For a time, it seemed like black exploitation was here to stay, until it wasn't. On the second part of our two-part series, we'll discuss the backlash, the fall, and the enduring legacy of black exploitation. Today on Slums of Film History. Slums of Film History, a lowbrow look into the high art of cinema. Every episode is an in-depth look into a niche topic of film that is not normally discussed in play company. I'm Slate. And I'm Tom. And each week, one of us researches our respective topic, writes an episode, and then schools the other. We discuss everything from black exploitation to ethnically inclusive street gangs to backwater hick rapists. If there's a film subject too taboo, we haven't found it yet. Welcome. Hey Slate. Hi Tom. What's up, motherfucker? What up? Sorry, I had to. I'm been no, watching. I got it. I'm, I'm down with it. Yeah. Welcome. I want to get right into this because it's the second part. But so if you're listening and you haven't listened to part one of this from last week, go back, listen to that first, then come back here. Yeah. Now I'm going to start with a little bit of a recap, but yes, please listen sure. to part one. So where we left off in the early 70s, black exploitation was hugely successful. These films drew in large audiences and made impressive profits. Shaft pretty much single-handedly got MGM out of bankruptcy, and as the 70s went on, black exploitation had started rubbing off on other pop culture properties, most notably like Marvel Comics with Luke Cage, mm-hmm. but also with James Bond, specifically Live and Let Die, which right. was the James Bond black exploitation. Yeah, that's kind of where film. you left off. Yeah. And that's pretty much where I left off. People were taking notice, and more than just black audiences were flocking to see these films, and of course listening to the soundtracks. Black exploitation had created an environment where African American filmmakers could get an opportunity to film and release their movies, whereas the conventional Hollywood system, while better than it was, was still not open to many black filmmakers. This goes without saying as well that black film crews, such as technicians and operators, sure. were still having difficulties gaining work in mainstream Hollywood movies, but were finding more opportunity in black exploitation films. So not since the race films of the early 1900s, as we spoke about also, African Americans afforded the chance to work in a lot of different parts of movies. Which, this part leads me to a part I didn't really talk about before, which was the actors of these movies. Mm-hmm. Because black exploitation movies created black exploitation stars. 
You right, know, right. we talked about the different genres of movies that were black exploitation movies. Right, sure. All and the westerns and westerns, horror movies, yeah. black exorcist. Black exorcist. It should have been the black exorcist. Right, sure, sure. Yeah. Animated films, yeah. Yeah. There was a wide variety, but black exploitation also created its own stars. And mm-hmm. I wanted to kind of touch on those folks because they're just as important as the movies. I'm excited about this because I know some of them. I know you do. So I'm going to talk about some of the superstars of black exploitation. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to start out with Jim Brown. Uh huh. So Jim Brown was a former football player who started acting in mainstream films like The Dirty Dozen. He was mm-hmm. the one black guy in The Dirty Dozen. Of course. Uh-huh. I mean, it's a good movie, but yeah. So he had small parts in mainstream Hollywood films in the 60s, but it wasn't until black exploitation became a big thing that he was a leading man. Sure. His first major film was called Slaughter. And mm-hmm. it was a 1972 black exploitation film. Slaughter. What's interesting about that is that the plot is Jim Brown is a black Vietnam veteran and former Green Beret captain who seeks revenge for the murder of his parents by the mafia. So it's a vigilante vet film that I had missed. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, he goes. It's real and, crossover. Yeah. Well, so maybe next season we'll do a vigilante veteran black exploitation <laughs> Doris Wishman films. We'll just mix them all together. About satanic panic. About satanic panic, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and puke and jizz if there's any in, in yeah, these sure. films, yeah. So Slaughter made a lot of money. Jim Brown was a star. Slaughter had a sequel called Slaughter's Big Ripoff in 1973. Again, Vigilante Vet, I just had to point this out. Yeah, Jim Brown shows yeah. up a lot. He's not one of the, the biggest of these stars with longevity, but yeah, former football pro Jim Brown. Hmm. He's badass. Great. I also mentioned Richard Roundtree as Shaft, mm-hmm. and he starred in a lot of other black exploitation films, but he's also sort of a mainstream actor. But I think Shaft was his biggest role, and he always betrayed I've him. never heard of him in anything other than Shaft. Right. But I want to talk about Fred the Hammer Williamson. Okay, sure. Because he was also an ex-football player who would go on to star in a bunch of black exploitation films like Black Caesar. Because, of course, I mentioned before that black exploitation films, half of them seem to have black something. Mm-hmm. So Black Caesar was one Is of that those. a period piece, I'm guessing? And it's a gangster movie. It's actually a remake oh, of okay. a, like a foreign film called like Little Caesar or something like that. Not mm-hmm. the pizza place. I think it was Little Caesar. They didn't make a black exploitation movie about a pizza place? No. Okay. Well, I mean, if you can't do the right thing, yeah, that's sure. not a black exploitation movie. Hell Up in Harlem, that's from 1973. Three Tough Guys, for example, that was another movie that Williamson was in. So he shows up in a lot of different movies. We'll talk about that and of course jim kelly jim kelly was the kung fu master that was in enter the dragon where he fought bruce lee but he, then he also had his own leading film which was black belt jones mm-hmm. and of course black samurai and he would also be in like movies like hot potato and then all three of those folks jim brown fred williamson and jim kelly would show up in the movie three the hard way from 1974 hmm. they've done it before on their own but this one's too big to handle alone brown williamson Kelly, the big three, together for the first time, they do it their way. Three the hard way, three cities and three of us. Action explodes all over the place when the big three join forces to save their race. What's happening? Why? Brown, Williamson, Kelly, together for the first time. This was also directed by Gordon Parks Jr. If you remember, he was the guy who did Superfly. Oh, right, yeah. So he came back, he directed these three guys, and so it's a it's a crazy fucking movie. Yeah. It's ridiculous as fuck, but what it is, is these white supremacists are plotting to kill the black population of the U.S. by poisoning the water supply. Mm-hmm. Like, it's something that only kills black people. It's, uh-huh. like, really just a crazy... Right. It's notable, too, because it's one of the first black exploitation films that takes its, like, ensemble cast and makes them more heroic than, the like, the flawed criminal hero of Superfly and some of these other movies. So mm-hmm. they were more, like, you know, men of action. Right. So, and it was, it was a big deal. It made oh, a lot cool. of money, too. Sounds good. So, yeah. 
there are a lot more examples of black exploitation actors, but these were the three powerhouse: Jim Brown, Fred Williamson, of course, Jim Kelly. I mean, I want to talk about the females of black exploitation. Yeah, and I know you'd be happy to hear about uh-huh. this because you know these black exploitation. You know, the men they were very macho. They were very much in your face, and they like you know loving the ladies, and they were just like men's men. But these women were also very empowered and very badass. They kicked lots of ass. Usually, they started out as like victims somehow, and then they came out and beat the shit out of somebody. Yeah. Uh, the first one I want to talk about is Tamara Dobson. She uh, starred in and is best known for Cleopatra Jones from 1973. Sure. <laughs> Tamara Dobson, the Soul Sisters' answer to James Bond, and the most exciting new star in years. Six feet two of dynamite, and it's all stacked. And up against her is the arch enemy, the female successor to Goldfinger, two-time Academy Award winner Shelley Winters as Mommy. I'll take care of Cleopatra Jones. Cleopatra Jones, starring Tamara Dobson, co-starring Bernie Casey, Brenda Sykes, Esther Rowe, and Shelley Winters as Mommy. Cleopatra Jones is actually pretty kick-ass. But the movie, she played sort of a black James Bond-type chick. She worked for the government, but was like an undercover model. And she had this cool-ass Corvette with machine guns and shit. She was like hardcore black feminist, you know? And she would go and like just beat people's ass. And I guess the biggest thing is she'd go around the world under cover of being a model, and she would like stop people from growing smack. Uh-huh. Okay. And that's what they call yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, she was beautiful. She's and beautiful she was very woman. gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, she was like one of the prettiest women alive. Cleopatra Jones is considered a landmark in black exploitation, but also in black feminist movement, just because she could kick much ass. And it was actually even before like Jim Kelly, this was, I think, the first movie that had a black protagonist using kung fu and karate and shit, uh-huh. kicking people's ass. So Awesome. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Another note on Cleopatra Jones, obviously it was a box office success. It grossed more than $100,000 in its first week of release and, and climbing $400,000 by its fifth week, which, I mean, it costs nothing to make. So Yeah, in indie movies, like, that's huge. If, it, yeah. if an indie or, like, exploitation movie made a dollar, then it was successful. Right, and, and it did. And fun fact with uh, Cleopatra Jones, Shelley Winters is in this movie. Oh, really? And she's fucking, like, nuts. Well, to I mean, be I, she fair, was nuts in real Shelley life. Winters I mean, she was nuts in is real life. a nutso human yeah. being. She was so. fucking crazy. Yeah. And also, fun fact, Tamara Dobson starred in Chain Heat with our favorite actress, Linda Blair. Oh, uh, we love Linda. Yeah, yeah, so the next female that I want to talk about is the most famous exploitation actress of all, and that would be the lovely and talented Pam Greer. I love Pam so much. I've yeah. been waiting this whole time for you to mention her. She became a, a staple of early 70s exploitation movies. She uh, you know, played big, bold, assertive women, and this started with Jack Hill's Coffee. You mm-hmm. mentioned Jack Hill in another one of your episodes. Yeah, he was you know, one of the pioneers of kind of the exploitation, but mostly sexploitation yeah. films. I could probably do I honestly don't know that much about him when it comes down to the fact that like I know a lot about directors around that time, so yeah. I'm going to dig into Jack Hill a little bit more, but I know Coffee very well. Yeah, Coffee's great, and for those who don't know what this movie's about, it, in a nutshell... This movie's about uh, Pam Greer. She plays a nurse who seeks revenge on these drug dealers. Her character is advertised in the trailer as the baddest one-chick hit squad to ever hit town. Love that. They have some good taglines. Yeah. They really do, yeah. It's coffee with a Y, right? Yeah, it's C-O-F-F-Y. Yeah. Yep. The film, which was filled with sexual and violent elements typical of you know the black exploitation genre, was a box office hit. Greer is considered to be probably the first African-American female to headline an action film. So technically, Coffee came out before Cleopatra Jones, I think. So, yeah, she was the first leading lady yeah. of black exploitation. She's just bad as shit. She like, is bad as shit. Everything she does, I'm just I'm yeah. a fan of. Yeah, she's really, really awesome. So these movies are really important, and these characters are really important. I mean, because, again, you know, these were black females who... They weren't headlining any movies in the sure. mainstream cinema. I mean, there were some few black 
protagonists and mostly Sidney Poitier, as we talked about before. Black women had no roles unless, and even in most black exploitation, they played hookers or victims or being, you know, or roughed up or whatever. So it was nice seeing assertive, like black yeah, feminist absolutely. leading ladies. And they really set the stage for, I'd say, every single black leading lady to come, like up until now. They're they're in the shadow of Tamara Dobson and Pam Greer. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, though, when black exploitation faded, so did most of these stars. However, Pam Greer managed to carve out a little bit of a career for herself, and we'll definitely talk about her going down the road. Yep. But, you know, some. Not much, lot, though. Not much. Jackie Brown. I can't name another thing. There's after a few that. things. I'll talk about it. Yeah. But they definitely were they were like a product of yeah and a They're product of their time definitely yeah. a product of the time and groundbreaking but we'll talk about their influence as we go along i also want to note something about black exploitation films too because okay we have the stars which were you know fred williamson and, and pam greer but also we had stars that were popular in other arenas but got like a boost with black exploitation mm-hmm. so i want to talk about a few of those too the first one i want to talk about is actually richard pryor now richard pryor you know was one of the greatest comedians of all sure. time and he was an up-and-coming comedian in the early 70s he made several live concert albums and so he was getting very popular in 71 72 whatever yeah. but then he uh starred in the 1973 movie the mac which is a black exploitation movie oh, yeah, you've I heard of the mac this. yeah vaguely yeah. So the Mac is a, a film that was directed by Michael Campus. It had Max Julian as the Michael lead character. Krampus? And Michael Krampus directed this. So it stars Max Julian, of course, Richard Pryor. The film also stars Oscar nominee Juanita Moore and Tony nominated actor Dick Anthony Williams. So hey, you got some got some prestige in there. Okay. So the Mac, the movie, it follows the rise and fall of Goldie. And that after returning home from a five year prison sentence, he returns to find that his brother is involved in black nationalism. Gold- Wait. Hold on. His name is Goldie. Yeah. It's a girl's name. Don't, he'll fucking cut you if you I tell him. I don't care. That. I'm willing to take that risk <laughs> just to let him know his name is a girl's name. Wow. All right. All right. He'll cut you, motherfucker. I'm fine with that. All right. Just letting you know. Anyhow, Goldie, girl's name or not, decides to take an alternate path to his black nationalist brother and he strives to become the city's biggest pimp. And he succeeds in being the city's biggest pimp. And of course, Richard Pryor's in that. The Mac is worth noting for more than just, you know, Richard Pryor's participation. It also has a scene in it that's like probably the most famous scene of the movie, which is a player's ball. It's actually like an award show for pimps. Yeah, sure. Like the Pimp Academy Awards. Yeah. And of course, spoiler, Goldie wins the Pimp Award, so he's Pimp of the Year. Mm-hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the big moment we've all been waiting for. Who is the big Mac of the Year? We'll talk more about this later on. I've heard a lot about Players Ball. So. Okay, so and I'm sure our audience has yeah. to. But yeah, so that's where it started was the Mac. Oh, interesting. The next example I want to talk about is Isaac Hayes himself. Mm-hmm. So already a successful musician with albums like Hot Buttered Soul. Hot Buttered Love Soul. Love that. That's great. But when he produced and performed the Academy Award-winning Shaft soundtrack in 1971, he shot into the stratosphere. I mean, he took the fuck off. Yeah. There's also a, like a one-two punch, too, because that same year, I think, or right after, he came out with Black Moses, which was another big album. Mm-hmm. So he was just on fire. So people thought, hey, he'd be perfect in the movie. So he actually starred in several black exploitation movies. The, the two big ones were Three Tough Guys, or sometimes known as Tough Guys, and Truck Turner, both from 1974. Truck Turner? Sorry, Truck Turner. Turner. Truck Turner. Yeah, Mac Truck Turner. Got it. Yeah. Three Tough Guys wasn't really as popular, though. It's got a good soundtrack, as you can imagine, which mm-hmm. was done by Isaac I've Hayes I've never heard himself. of these two, so it couldn't have been but so popular. Yeah. Oh, no. Truck Turner? You haven't heard of Truck Turner? No. All right. That's, that's a damn shame. So anyway, I'll talk about Three Tough Guys first. Number one, I don't know much about it, but Fred Williamson, another black exploitation star, starred with Isaac Hayes in that movie, okay. and it's got something to do with the bank robbery. Honestly, I didn't see it. Yeah. But Truck Turner is the shit, right? So Isaac Hayes plays Mac Truck 
quote-unquote Turner, who's a former professional football player, which is funny because Williamson is actually a one. Right, sure. So Isaac Hayes plays that, Mm -hmm. who becomes a Los Angeles-based bounty hunter after he gets, like, hurt on the field or whatever. Mm -hmm. This also stars Michelle Nichols, who I mentioned in Star Trek in the first part of the series. She was a Uhura. She plays, like, the bad guy. She plays, like, a, a female pimp or something. She wants, you know, Truck Turner dead. Uh-huh. Or whatever. Yeah, sure. Hide your mamas. Big brother is coming. And he's coming on strong. Isaac Hayes, the big brother of soul, is making a new kind of music. And it's mean jive. Anybody ask you what happened, tell him you've been hit by a truck. Matt Truck Turner. When he's hottest, he's the coolest. I want that truck turner and I want him dead. Isaac Hayes as a skip tracer, a modern day bounty hunter, making a healthy living by making living unhealthy for cats who skip bail. When he gets it on, the action takes off. Isaac Hayes, the magic name of music, winner of the Academy Award for his music in Shaft, Truck Turner. Isaac Hayes did check this one out. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty good. But Hayes had never acted before, and he didn't really do that great a job. But I mean, you know, come on now, he was kicking ass, and he had a big gun, and he was shooting motherfuckers. He was chef, so right. That's all that matters. Fine, we talk about that later too. And lastly, and you know, honestly, this is the main reason I did this. I want to talk about Rudy Ray Moore. Mm-hmm. So Rudy Ray Moore was a comedian, and he, you know, he was up and coming. He wasn't as popular as Pryor was at the time before black exploitation came along, but he was struggling. He was coming up with some things, and one of his biggest routines was telling these raunchy stories about a character named Dolomite. Mm-hmm. He would usually rhyme in the, a lot in these stories, and that became known as sort of a, like a precursor to rap known as signifying. Mm-hmm. And they'd be really raunchy, and he'd say a bunch of motherfucking ass, and it's you know, it's, sure. He recorded a lot of this stuff, so he had a several comedy albums out featuring this Dolomite my character he used the profit of those albums to finance his feature film which is dolomite, dolomite. from 1975 mm-hmm. dolomite is my name and fucking up motherfuckers is my game i've got an all-girl army that knows what to do they'll fox as hell and practice kung fu i put my finger in the ground and turn the whole world around i'm waiting for dolomite for who Dolomite, motherfucker. From the first to the last, I give them the blast so fast that their life is passed before their ass has even hit the grass. See me uptown, downtown, crowned and renowned. Delayed, relayed, mislaid, and parlayed. Coming to this theater as this next attraction is the picture that will put you in traction. Dolomite, starring me. Rudy Ray Moore as Dolomite. I am dying to talk about Dolomite because everything that kind of people joke about black exploitation, it's because of Dolomite. Uh-huh. Do you own Dolomite? It's funny you should ask that because last Christmas, uh-huh. Christmas of 2015, a good friend of mine gave me mm. the Dolomite collection on DVD, which has uh, Dolomite. Uh-huh. The sequel, Human Tornado, uh-huh. and then some spinoff movies like uh, P.D. Weedstraw, which is Dolomite playing a different character, and Disco Godfather. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's way too much Dolomite going on there. Right. Well, uh, so to our audience, I was that friend that got it, <laughs> and I like found the Dolomite box set. It was like a hundred bucks, and it was like was it really? all of these. I don't know. It was probably one dollar. I don't. <laughs> who cares? But I was just like, oh, a Dolomite box set. But I think you found the one Dolomite box set. Yeah, like, I think that was they made one just to say they did it, and you bought it, and they sold 
sold one copy and it and was you own to, it. Me, and to me and I and wrapped I it up it. and gave it to you. And yes. yes, I was very excited I'm a about proud that gift. owner of yeah. Dolomite. Mm-hmm. I got to talk about Dolomite. So the character of Dolomite, he's quoted as the ultimate ghetto hero. He's a bad dude. He can fight. He knows Kung Fu, which is how he would say it. Kung and, Fu? Yeah, that's how we would talk about it. I know nothing it. about Dolomite. There's going to be so I many clips of Dolomite gave it to you Dolomite is amazing. like, I'm going to let him deal with it. So Dolomite, he tried to have everything in there. He tried to be a pimp, like it was from Superfly. He also was like good with guns. He was a tough guy like Fred Williamson. And of course, new Kung Fu like Jim Kelly. Yeah, it sounds like a mess. This is, but Dolomite's amazing. In a good way or a bad way? No, in a bad way. <laughs> okay, right, good. I was like, <laughs> yes. wait a minute, are you telling no, me Dolomite's ba- good? Okay, but here's no, the thing good. with Dolomite, and here's what I got to talk about this, and if you know any listeners out there who have any opinions on Dolomite or some insight, please send that shit to me. Because I can't tell if this movie is supposed to be a joke, or if it's partially like a parody, or if it's just incompetent and doesn't know, like I don't know how Is it like the, the black joke. version of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls? It's between Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and... And the room. Oh, uh, oh, almost the room. I see. So it's poorly made. It's poorly made. Okay, but mm-hmm. I feel like there's a lot of heart behind it. And Dolomite's uh, very sure. likable, and he's this very oh, that's profane. Interesting. Yeah, because behind the Valley of the Dolls is perfectly filmed. Right. This uh, is and not. the room is a disaster. For example, the boom mic is in the shot so much it's almost like it's another character. Oh, so it's like starring. Yeah, the the boom mic has more screen time than half <laughs> of the actors. <laughs> that makes me so happy. Yeah, it's great. But yeah, just like things like that. But I mean, it was low budget. You know, they they couldn't do a lot sure, of second sure. takes. And Rudy Ray Moore was not an actor, and he certainly wasn't a kung fu expert. And, you know, he's this overweight guy who was this, like, sex machine, and he like, could kick people's ass. And it was, it's a fun movie. It's amateurish, but it's hilarious. Ooh, it's I worth watching. borrow this from you. I'm but every single parody that you will probably see that's about black exploitation takes it from Dolomite. Right, sure. Dolomite sure. is the source material for every movie that makes fun of black exploitation. Yeah. And rightfully so. It's something, it's something to see. I'm really interested. I, I mainly bought it for you to be like... Great, now you watch all this, and now I'm kind of want to see Dolomite myself. Is yeah. this, it's amazing. And of course, the actual immediate sequel was called The Human Tornado. Mm-hmm. And that was a little more tongue-in-cheek, still bad, but there's a scene in that movie where he's caught, you know, screwing some white guy's wife, like the sheriff's wife or mm-hmm. something. Sure. And so he has to jump out the window, and he's naked, and he jumps out the window, rolls down a hill, and he basically stops the frame in the movie. He's like, y'all motherfuckers didn't think I did this for real. <laughs> then it does it again, like to show that he was actually did the stunt. Oh, he did his own stunt. Yeah. So y'all don't believe I jumped, huh? So watch this good shit. So that's, that's kind of funny. It so is it's kind of funny. very like breaking the fourth wall. Breaking the yeah. fourth wall. Just very tongue in cheek. So it, there is a lot of deliberate humor. I think there's also a lot of like incidental humor as sure. well. But Dolomite was just as far oh, as late I like period black exploitation. No, I haven't seen it, but it makes, makes really, me really like this. Yeah. And we'll talk about that as we go along because yeah. we'll go back into that. But Rudy Ray Moore kind of carved himself a cottage industry and and has some second life as the character of Dolomite. Oh, I like him now. Yeah, it's it really is great. You know, so I'm not making. I mean, I am making fun of it a little bit, but I'm not. It's really generally good movie so i wanted to touch on these characters these are the superstars of black exploitation they managed to carve out some celebrity and some good fortune in these movies unfortunately we're switching gears because we're going to talk about the backlash because throughout the first part of this series you know i talked about the up-and-coming movies i talked about how they hit the scene and audiences flocked to them but i didn't really talk about how there was backlash that followed and i mean it followed immediately yeah of course well this is why we can't have nice things right yeah exactly so to effectively talk about the backlash that followed black exploitation i have to go back to the, pretty much the very beginning. No sooner than Isaac Hayes like crooned about Shaft being a sex machine that got all the chicks. 
then there were people speaking out in protest about mm-hmm, this movie. Of course. For example, on September 6, 1971, Newsweek magazine produced an article called Blacks vs. Shaft. In this article, displeased African Americans voiced their opposition against the black exploitation movement, saying that the films created false heroes who demean the black image. Black film critic Clayton Riley expressed to the New York Times, and quotes, that the new black films portrayed a fairy tale treatment of black life. He compared the Hollywood producers to thieves, saying that they had found another vein of gold to rip off. That's fair. Yeah. Conrad Smith, leader of the Los Angeles branch of Congress of Racial Equality, also known as CORE, told Newsweek's Henry McGee, we've prepared to go all the way with this, even to the extent of running people out of theaters. So they were fucking serious about Mm -hmm. hating black exploitation. They were pissed, and it was easy to see why, truth be told. The previous decade had shown African-Americans making huge strides in cinema. I mean, to some degree. Right. I can see their point. They're trying to claw their way up in mainstream cinema, and you had the civil rights movement, we talked about that. And so the last thing they want to do is have these stereotypical, you know, representations of what they felt were stereotypical representations of black life on the screen. You know, they didn't want to give white people another reason to hate black people. Right. But in the same sense, you don't want to sit there. And again, we talked about Bill Cosby a little bit. But, you know, when you are not as fortunate as someone like Bill Cosby and you're watching something like The Cosby Show, which is, you know, she's a lawyer, he's a doctor. They've got all these perfect, you know, like kids or whatever. You want to see something that represents your life a little bit more. Right. more you've got to show the gritty things because otherwise no one wants to go to see a movie about someone that you're not and someone that's just a wonderful representation of you and then everybody can go home and eat apple pie you know yeah no i agree but again this shows how complex this whole situation oh, is yeah, especially with this film movement because some audiences would see these movies empowering while others would just see them as destructive right sure. you know I, and I can definitely see both sides of it, you know? I mean, right. I want to see proper and fair representation of everyone. I also want to see a movie where everyone gets murdered and violent and, right. you know, there's boobs and, you know, it's a mess. Like, yeah, I want to see exploitation. Exactly. Exploitation is great. Yeah. But going back, you remember, in the last episode, I stated that the term black exploitation was originally created as a negative term to draw attention to what some saw as the corrupting nature of this emerging genre. Mm-hmm. It was coined in 1972 by Junius Griffin, uh, the Beverly Hills Hollywood NAACP chapter leader, to describe the film Superfly. Superfly just came out and he said, well, this is black exploitation, black exploitation. So black exploitation was used to designate certain films thought to be taking advantage of African American cinema goers' desire to see recognizably African American stories and characters represented in cinema. Instead of providing positive depictions of African Americans, black exploitation films offered a window into a world of crime, sex, and violence that appealed to an audience's most basis needs. That's what they felt like. Sure, that's called going to the movies. Right, exactly. On that note, in 1972, the NAACP joined forces with the Congress of Racial Equality Corps, as I mentioned, and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC. Oh, boy. Yeah, to form what was known as the Coalition Against Black Exploitation, or CAB. Mm-hmm. I say, oh, boy, not because I have any participation in the, what is it, Southern? The Southern Christian Leadership Congress. Yeah, but I'm an old Southern Baptist, and boy, do we know how to ruin everything. So. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a good point, yeah. And sorry, it was the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. But either way, fuck them, because they didn't like black uh, yeah, I mean, Yeah. So in their fight against black exploitation, CAB attempted to develop a rating system that would assign qualitative assessments to new films. And this was according to the film's representation of African Americans. The CAB also organized boycotts of theaters that ran black exploitation movies. And they even attempted to promote its agenda behind the scenes through negotiations with studio executives. 
but this wasn't really a unified front. Right. Sure. Obviously. This sounds like kind of like a small thing. Because I never, I've never even heard of this. I hadn't yeah. either before I researched this. Oh, huh. The other side of this coin, for instance, Superfly star Ron O'Neill was a, uh, one of the first to speak out against Cab. And I've got a quote. He says, they're saying they know better than the black people themselves what they should look at that they're going to be moral interpreters for the destiny of black people. And he says, I'm so tired of the handkerchief head Negroes moralizing the poor black man. That was his quote against the cab. Mm-hmm. Actor Jim Brown also defended the films, for example, explaining that they created much needed work for African-American actors and writers. Sure. So Fred Williamson, who I've talked about before, he saw a double standard in the absence of similar criticism in violent films starring white actors, which is true. And director Oscar Williams understood the rejection of black exploitation cinema as a greedy Hollywood maneuver to keep African Americans away from vast sums of money being made in these mo- in this movie business. So Boy, this issue got real complicated, it got real fast. Conspiracies, things were going on. Right. But I mean, Fred Williams is right too. They, everyone's right. In everyone's this right, scenario. and it's everyone's like, kind of wrong. It's black exploitation. It's, it's exploiting the black experience right. to make money, and especially when white people are making money off of that, it's like, okay, I don't like that. But when it comes down to, okay, there's entertainment, black people aren't being fairly represented in Hollywood films, then you're like, well, this is good then because they are, people are going to the movies, black people are going to movies, seeing black actors in movies. It's a complicated issue. It is a complicated issue. And Williamson brings up another good point. You know, he mentions, okay, around this time period, Death Wish came out. Huge exploitation movie. But he's like, this isn't white exploitation. You know, it's not... But, you know, it's it's interesting, though, because you had this part and they were getting more vocal and it was a problem, you know, yeah. because more studios were also getting involved with these movies. So Hollywood doesn't work if it doesn't make money. So if, if they see an opportunity to make money, they're going to grab at it. You yeah. Know? But, you know, what the interesting part about that is, OK, so you had this one side, but really I mean, that was part of the demise of black exploitation, cab and that other shit. Yeah. But the other thing was this kind of came out of nowhere, if you think about it. But the same year that Dolomite came out, another thing came out to help destroy black exploitation. Mm-hmm. And that was Jaws. Okay. Now, not Jaws specifically, but Jaws was the first blockbuster. Right, right. Everybody saw Jaws. Everybody. Black, white, it didn't matter. Everybody saw Jaws. It was huge. Mm-hmm. So Hollywood learned that lesson that we don't have to focus on one certain group because right. if we make blockbuster films, release them at the right time, everyone's going to go see them black, white, it doesn't matter. Right. So that is where they started to focus. Plus, with right. the added baggage of Cab and everybody else bitching about these fucking movies coming out, it wasn't worth the hassle. Right. And since everybody was seeing Jaws, and then two years later, you've got Star Wars and then Saturday Night Fever, all these movies were fucking huge. And every audience loved these movies. Right. So they, instead of looking around and saying, what independent movies and what independent genres can we pick up, uh, have distribution on, and profit off of, they all of a sudden saw, we don't need to even do that shit. We we just need a big, giant movie that's going to make $400 million. It's going to be a worldwide phenomena. Yeah, let's make movies everybody goes and sees, right? right? And and they didn't... And we're still there. We're... It's kind of stuck in that model now. Yeah, we've been in blockbuster movies for 40 years now. Yeah. And so, within a year of, say, you know, Star Wars came out or whenever, black exploitation was pretty much dead. Right, yeah. So, at this point, this is where I want to discuss what I call the legacy of black exploitation. So, the 80s are pretty interesting to me. Because the 80s were a lot like the 60s if you're looking at black American movies. And here's why I say that. Because the 60s movies and we've said that a million times were Sidney Poitier mm-hmm. he carried the 60s for black cinema Eddie Murphy carried it in the 80s right sure the biggest two crossover African-American entertainers in the 80s was Michael Jackson and Eddie Murphy mm-hmm. so 
black cinema pretty much was all on his shoulders. I mean, yeah, there's other black movies. I'm not saying that they didn't exist. But if you're looking at the biggest thing that happened in African-American movies, it was him. Yeah. No, I, for a while, I, at I least. See, I'm thinking, but yeah, but I think you're right. Yeah. And so, you know, black cinema was kind of it had fallen off, you know, black made movies, whatever. But that would start to change near the end of the 80s. Mm-hmm. And the person that I'm going to talk about is Spike Lee. Okay. You know, I'm so excited about this era, just because when you were talking about Eddie Murphy, I was thinking like, oh, Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah. And then I started thinking about Spike Lee, and I'm sure you're probably going to talk about John Singleton. Yeah, and I'm talking like, about this that. This was such a rich area like yeah. of American film. Yeah, it was. And it really, I think, started with Spike. Yeah. You know, and, and oh, definitely. His first movie was She's Gotta Have It, which was a low-budget movie, indie movie. Um, it got wide acclaim. It was followed up by School Days, which yep. was more about black colleges and stuff. I actually but really like School, school Days. School Days is good. But it was the 1989 movie Do the Right Thing that blew the fuck up for oh Spike Lee. Yeah. Do the Right Thing is the best movie. Do the Right Thing is one of the best movies I've ever seen in my entire right. life. So, But here's the thing, too, and why it's such a stark difference, because really, if this was made in the 70s, it would have been a black exploitation movie. Absolutely. It follows correct. the yeah. same story beats, but it's, you know, it's more of what we have as modern indie films. It's got more in common with that than the 70s. And actually, if you look at Spike Lee, and of course, he was followed by John Singleton with Boys in the Hood in 1991. Another movie about urban violence. But, you know, Spike Lee, John Singleton, Maddie Rich, a lot of the folks that came out at that time period that were making these movies, the Hughes brothers who did Menace to Society in 94... Sorry, 93. They were like almost ashamed of black exploitation. Yeah. You know, when they talked about their influences, you know, Spike Lee would say, oh, I, I got this from Scorsese, you know, or they talk about I saw the 400 blows or they talk about French, you know, New Wave. They were claiming to be influenced by and they were by these other more artsy types sure. of films or more progressive types of films. And it seemed like they were pretty much embarrassed by these movies. Mario Van Peebles, Melvin Van Peebles, Sweet Sweetback's son. Yeah. You know, directed uh, New Jack City in 1991. I love New Jack City. Uh, I do so, too. So funny story. In 1991, I was 11. Wow. And I became obsessed with seeing Boys in the Hood. And as we talked about in exploitation, I was from the country. It took an hour and almost 20 minutes for us to drive to the closest movie theater. Right. And I became, you know, through Entertainment Weekly and Premiere, both of which I had subscriptions to at 11 years old, was like to my mom, I have got to go see Boys in the Hood. This is an important film. This is a new director, John Singleton. I mm-hmm. have to see this movie. And, you know, all of a sudden there was violence in movie theaters. There were shootings. People were getting upset about Boys in the Hood and my mom was like I don't want you to see it it's too you know I think she just didn't want to explain it to me and she went to go you know to the mall one day and drive out to the mall and do some shopping or whatever and she decided she was going to go see Boys in the Hood so she went to go see Boys in the Hood by herself at the Patrick Henry Mall and at the end of it and she said I'm going to let Slate see this movie when it comes out on VHS because I think she was nervous I was going to get shot in the movie theater because everybody wants to shoot an 11-year-old gay kid. And so (laughs) when it came out on VHS, she rented it, and we watched it together, Boys in the Hood, and she talked me through some of the more complicated things to make sure I understood it. Yeah, your mom's gangsta as fuck, and she's a badass bitch. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Yep, that's cool that she did that, and it it's was an important a film. Really complicated movie. I watched it relatively recently, and it, it's honestly not the best movie I've ever seen. It's, no, it, there's a very a lot of early ninety isms with it, and yeah. it, there's some elements that are a little bit dated, but it was powerful when it came out. Absolutely, it certainly was. You know, a new era in film, especially black cinema. Yeah, you know, this he was, was nominated for best director. Yeah. you know, for that movie, Boys in the Hood made a shitload of money too. Yeah, but yeah. it was 
what one of the first films, and along with Do the Right Thing and a bunch of other movies that came out of that time period, known as the, the Black Renaissance in filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and and again, it was oh my another God, it was such an amazing time. But again, it was this indie spirit. You know, and indie movies were big all across everywhere in the nineties. You right. know, independent movies were where it was at. And, you know, these urban movies, as they call, really touched a nerve. Oh, my God, yeah. They were nominated for awards. They were considered prestige movies in their own right in a lot of ways. Well, and I think that the African-American community, and again, we have to kind of talk lightly about this, and I think we've done a nice job, but, you know, we're not African-American, so... No, we're white as fuck. But I feel like at least whether African-Americans felt like they were represented correctly, at least they were being represented at that time. Yeah. And I don't feel like we're doing a very good job of that right now. You yeah, know? well, so, that's, we, we'll come back to that. Yeah. But a couple of things I want to kind of backtrack on in the 80s, though, is that even though we did have the new black film renaissance, there were a few black exploitation homages in film yeah, sure. that kind of mm-hmm. snuck in. Uh, the first one I want to talk about is The Last Dragon from 1985. Mm-hmm. It's an homage kind of like a Bruce Lee films of black exploitation where it has like Bruce Lee Roy and Show Enough in their fight. It's kind of black exploitation-y, but okay. also sort of break dancey. A martial arts champion in search of the glow. Master, I need more time. I am no longer your master. A madman. Shogun of Harlem. Leroy Green, I'm looking for the little pop thinks he's a kung fu master. I am no master. This is Barry Gordy's The Last Dragon. DeBarge did the song for it. <laughs> I know you love DeBarge. Everybody likes El DeBarge. Yeah. And then I'm going to get you Sucka from 1988, which oh, was sure. a, the spoof. Yeah. That was probably the first main spoof of black exploitation. Mm-hmm. That, and it had a lot of those former stars in it. Jim Brown uh-huh. and Isaac Hayes was in there as well. Yeah. And it was just a big joke on black exploitation. It was funny and it, and it did yeah. well. You know, black audiences liked it and it was a good crossover hit. So it made some money. And then, of course, Action Jackson. Mm-hmm. He's a cop who carries no weapon. This Jackson is so vicious, we don't even let him have a gun. Yeah! He's a maverick who answers to no one. You not to let boy's arm off. He had a spear. <laughs> He's a man who's no talk. I bet I can make you change your mind. And all action. How do you like your ribs? Carl Weathers is... Action Jackson. And action is on the way. That's exactly what I was going to say. Mm-hmm. Which started Carl Weathers. It was going to be a vehicle for him to do a bunch of sequels and stuff, but it was very black exploitation y in that he was sort of kind of a John Shaft type of character. Sure. A mix between John Shaft and 80s action movies that were big, you know, like he was going to be the Black Stallone. And it's Carl Weathers, which you got to love Carl Weathers. Yeah. It never really took off. I don't think it did all that well, but yeah. I mean, that definitely was an homage and sort of taking a chapter out of the black exploitation book, but it, it never really went anywhere. So there is one place where I think black exploitation was really thriving in the 80s, and that was hip-hop music. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, hip-hop music at that time, if you remember, there was nothing but, like, James Brown samples. Everybody sampled James Brown, funky drummers, like, in every song. Mm-hmm. But as time went on, a lot of groups started using black exploitation samples in their music, bringing some of that old Isaac Hayes type of stuff into their music. Right. Yeah, totally. And there's so many to choose from here, I'm not even going to bother to start naming names and listing stuff. I will talk about a couple, but uh, the one I want to talk about prominently, I think, is Dr. Dre. Ray, 
you know, he was the producer of NWA music and he used a lot of samples in their songs. And by extension of him, I think it's appropriate to talk about Snoop Dogg, which his whole persona was like black exploitation. Yeah, like sure. the whole pimp persona. He talks about Dolomite in some songs. Mm-hmm. Snoop Dogg was like, I'm the black exploitation hero. He wore that kind of shit. And he still kind of does. And he's high yeah, all the sure. time. So mm-hmm. he really idolized that stuff and it came yeah. out in his music. So I think that's the first time people heard about Dolomite and, yeah, and pimping. Yeah, super and, meta. And, yeah. yeah, that's the first time I really heard about that stuff. Mm-hmm. Showing much flex when it's time to wreck a mic. Pimping hoes and clacking a grip like my name was Dolomite. Yeah, and it don't And you've got other songs that even have come out not too long ago. You know, you've got 50 Cent's hit single, what was it, PIMP? Uh-huh. And then, of course, you've got Nelly with this freaking Pimp Juice. Remember Pimp Juice? I think I remember Pimp Juice. Yeah. I'm a big Nelly fan. So you got partially the exposure of black exploitation that kids were getting through hip hop music in the nineties. You also mm-hmm. had this indie film resurgence in the nineties. But I'd say another loud voice of black exploitation that had popped up in the nineties was none other than Quentin Tarantino. I, uh, I wrote down Samuel L. Jackson and I just talked the about whole that. thing. So yeah, yeah, I yeah. figured you were getting there, but you could argue that he has been making black exploitation movies from the get go, or at least aspects of that. I mean, even in nineteen ninety two with Reservoir Dogs, you know, they talk about a bunch of things in that movie. Madonna, they have conversations Thank about you for that. Shouting famous- that out. Uh-huh. Yeah, you're welcome. Later on in the movie, they have a conversation about a made-for-TV movie that's a black exploitation movie called Get Christy Love, and they have a long conversation about that. Oh, wow, yeah. You know, in a movie of conversations, they brought up black exploitation, And then, of course, Pulp Fiction. I mean, Samuel Jackson's character is nothing but a black exploitation character. That he's character. got the afro, the beard. He's badass. He's hard. It's funny. You know, like, I mean, at some point, he turned his career from being kind of, you know, a good established actor into shouting out the word fuck right and into a black exploitation character of his own like and he's awesome, awesome at it he's yeah. perfect at it i love it you know, and he's he's used variations of that throughout the rest of his career yeah. and we'll talk about him a little bit more as we go down here and then another bright spot or a little spot of black exploitation in the 90s was none other than a movie called original gangsters from 1996. Mm-hmm. This movie was basically... Original Gangsters, I remember this, right. yeah. This was basically like a exploitation family reunion because it had Pam Greer, Richard Roundtree, Fred Williamson, and Jim Brown. They were all together in this movie and the movie was basically about these people come back to the neighborhood to fight the gangsters that are there now because sure. they used to run in this neighborhood or whatever. It's it's basically like we're, we used to be in exploitation. we're going to come back and kick some young kids' ass because we're still badass. Yeah. It didn't do all that yeah, well. Yeah, it didn't do well. But... Yeah. I mean, I think that wouldn't have been made without Ice-T and everybody else that were rapping about the, the whole pimp culture thing and black exploitation. And then, sure. of course, you got Tarantino and Sam Jackson yelling about it as well. So, And then, of course, I'm talking about Tarantino again because his next movie, Jackie Brown, is a straight-up black exploitation yeah. movie. Oh, gosh. I love Jackie Brown. I do, too. I saw it again not too long ago. I like it more now than I did when I first saw it. Well, I've only seen it once. I saw it you know, right after Pulp Fiction, right after it came out, and it didn't actually get the best reviews. People were right. kind of being like, this is his... You you know, follow up to Pulp Fiction. I loved it. I, I thought too. it was a great movie. You know, she's just, I mean, she was wonderful. Me, she, she can do no wrong. All right. So for people who don't know about this movie, go watch this fucking movie. Yeah. But it starred Pam Greer and she played the title character, Jackie Brown, which actually the movie was adapted from a book called Rum Punch by Elmore Leonard. Mm-hmm. The character is originally called Jackie Burke and it was a white character. But he, when Carantino read the book and wrote the script, he's like, I'm going to make a black yep. character. And he was also trying to use this to bring Pam Greer back because she's wonderful. Yeah. 
And of course, Pam Grier's in it, Sam Jackson's in it, and Robert De Niro has a role in it. That's right, yeah. It, yeah, it didn't do as good as Pulp Fiction, but I think it's quietly gained more of an audience. Yeah, I, I really liked it. Some fun facts on that it, it does lift music from black exploitation movies that are in it. Like uh, 110th Street was from a movie called 110th Street, a black exploitation movie. And then there's a lot of music that was used in the action scenes that were lifted directly from oh, the movie. Oh, really? Coffee, from yeah. her first from her uh, first movie. film, yeah. yeah. And the next movie I want to talk about is none other than the remake slash sequel of Shaft in 2000, starring Samuel L. Jackson. Remember me? Read my mind. Who delivers 10 times out of 10? Who's the cat that won't cop out? Shady Ray. They say I'm a complicated man. I might take you down, but I'll never let you down. Who's the man who'd risk his neck for his brother man? Now, what's my name? Shaft! Can you dig it? Wasn't a great movie, but you know what's interesting about that is I mentioned, guess who directed this movie? John Singleton. John Singleton yeah, directed I it. I vaguely remember that, yeah. Yeah, which was interesting considering he was somebody who initially wanted to be removed from black exploitation and then makes a sequel to black exploitation movies, which actually wasn't very good, to yeah. be honest. It was he a shame. never managed to pull it out again after this, after Boys in the Hood, like... Never he did, did a it. few, but yeah, this one wasn't that great. And yeah. it's a shame, too, because Samuel fucking Jackson, you know, how do you fuck that up? Well, first of all, let me back up and say that the original Shaft has a cameo in this. So Richard Roundtree shows up in this movie because the movie's technically a sequel, as in Sam Jackson isn't John Shaft. He's like his nephew or some shit. Right. But yeah, it sucked. But, you know, the thing is, the movie was actually a moderate success. It, yeah, it grossed I like I 46 million bucks. And I mean, it made money. It didn't yeah. make a lot of money. It didn't spawn a series of films, which maybe it could have if it had gone been a little more bombastic. But yeah. it just didn't have it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there's a couple of other notable, I don't know how notable, they weren't really all that successful, I don't think, but they at least popped out in the early 2000s as Black Exploitation Homage. Mm-hmm. The first one was Pootie Tang. In modern day America, the corporations run our lives. But one man is prepared to take our country back. Pootie Tang! This summer, Woo! meet a superhero like no other. Pootie Tang's one bad brother, man. Pootie Tang whip your butt so bad that you can write it off on your taxes. Did it again. Paramount Pictures presents a man too cool for words. Pootie Tang. Pootie Tang, yeah. I've actually never seen Pootie Tang, but I lived with a girl. She was a roommate, and Pootie Tang was her favorite movie of all time. It's a weird I would be ass like, movie. So there's so there's Citizen Kane. Yeah. And there's whatever. And she'd be like, and then there was Pootie Tang. <laughs> and I was always just like, but I respected it for some weird reason. I like the love she had for Pootie Tang, I was like, this is I a genuine love for Pootie Tang. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I haven't seen all of it. I've seen parts of it. You know who made this movie, right? It was written and directed by Louis C.K. Really? Yeah. He made Pootie Tang? <laughs> he made Pootie Tang. Okay. Yeah. I, now I really want to see it. I mean, I've always kind of wanted to see it just because the love she had for, for Pootie, Pootie Tang. Tang was real. She wasn't trying to be ironic. 
Like she genuinely loved Pootie Tang. She like went to bed every night and like hugged the DVD of Pootie Tang. Like, <laughs> she loved it. <laughs> She's know? like going door to door like a Jehovah's Witness. She was like, do you know what Pootie Tang's plan Can for I you is? please spread the love of my God, Pootie Tang, Pootie Tang. the movie. She yeah. loved it. Let me let me go into a little bit of some detail on this. For of course, Louis C.K. wrote and directed, and it was adapted from a comedy sketch that first appeared on the Chris Rock Show. If you remember that, the Chris Rock Show. Yeah, you made that up. <laughs> it's real, I swear. The character Pootie Tang is a satire of the stereotypical characters that appeared in black exploitation films. The gimmick of the title character is that he's totally unintelligent. Like the audience doesn't know what the hell he's saying. He has these weird catchphrases that is just gibberish. On one of the Wikipedia pages, it actually has an interpretation of what each of these phrases means. Like you, you have to. It's like a Lord of the Rings style index to understand this fucking language. Okay. It's like Klingon. Uh huh. Of course, one of his main things is he has a belt that he whips out and beats up people with. It's a bizarre fucking movie. I don't know. But I can't wait to your see roommate it now. loves booty tanks. Yep. That's all I gotta say. On my list. All right. The next one is Undercover Brother from 2002. Remember that one? Yeah, and that was also like a black exploitation style secret agent that starred Eddie Griffin. And sort of a forgettable, likable black exploitation. I mean, it had its right. moments and it was okay, but it was just more of, again, these movies are all just comedies making fun of black exploitation. Right. But the next movie I want to talk about is my favorite movie of 2009 Black Dynamite. I didn't see it. Black Dynamite is fucking amazing. I love Black, black Dynamite. Dynamite. So Black Dynamite is an action comedy film that stars Michael J. White or Michael Jai White. He was in Spawn. I don't know. He, but he was he's like a real like kung fu. Like he can kick ass. Like this guy like has got black belts and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he's been in a lot of action movies. But he plays Black Dynamite. Um, and also has like Tommy Davidson and all these other. It has like everybody. Like fucking um, Arsenio Hall has a cameo on this movie. Oh, wow. It's crazy. But it was uh, directed by Scott Sanders. So here's the plot. It centers around a former CIA agent, Black Dynamite, who must avenge his brother's death while cleaning up the streets of a new drug ravaging the community, you know, heroin. It was first conceived as a, as a parody trailer, actually. They made this parody trailer, just, and then they used it to finance the film. So they kind of, like, kick-started it, I think, using this trailer to get some financing. Mm-hmm. All you suckers gather around. There's a brand-new movie coming to town. So get on up and check the scene of the smoothest, baddest mother to ever hit the big screen. Main man, Black Dynamite. He's super cool and he no kung fu. Drives a $5,000 car and wears a $100 suit. You're so righteous. This is also true. The CIA needs Black Dynamite now more than ever. We need you, Black Dynamite, now more than ever. I thought I told you, hunkies from the CIA, that Black Dynamite was out of the game. And he's better than Shaft Superfly and the Mac put together. But when the mob kills his brother, your death will not go on a bench. And put the dope on the street. It's my nephew Bucky. He od He's back in the game and he's playing for keeps. Black Dynamite! Feel the cinema fun and quattro Rated R. Well, let me just back to something and say that if your roommate's love of Pootie Tang is pure, then my love for Black Dynamite is pure, too, because okay. it, it's not just like a parody like all these other movies I talked about. Like, this is a true homage. Like, if you just threw this in, it looks just like a black exploitation oh, movie. Cool. It was filmed on 16 millimeter. It was all 70 out. You know, they used a lot of, like, stock footage and stuff to mix in to give it that this 70s vibe. And they f- used every single thing that is fucked up about black exploitation, like the mic in the scene and everything else. I'm going to put it on my list. Put it on your list. Mm-hmm. But Black Dynamite is amazing. Michael J. White, who I think should have gotten some sort of award because he manages to, like, combine Jim Kelly, Jim Brown, you know, all these guys into one person. And it's just, it's fucking hilarious. Oh, he good. does such okay. a great job with this movie. You know, the movie was shopped around. It didn't, it did okay, but it wasn't, it's I more of a cult item than anything else. Reason. Yeah, I own it. We should watch it. Okay. But it's, it's great. 
And I want to note something on the music, too, because even the music was imitated like those movies. And uh, the, the guy who did the music, Adrian Young, he's like a sort of a producer slash DJ guy, but he like played all the instruments. He like totally mimicked the black exploitation sound oh, wow. and the soul funk stuff. And remember earlier we were talking about where you were like, you know, you missed the fact that they weren't singing about the plot of the movie. Yeah, he yeah. does that. Like oh, they, good. Not only that, but they, they sing about a plot of like the scene that's happening oh, right God, there. I love that. It's amazing. They mimic it spot on. Yep. Black Dynamite is pitch perfect. Also, fun note on that, they also made a cartoon series for Black Dynamite that premiered on Adult Swim. It was done by the same animators who did the Boondocks. Mm-hmm. And it's bombastic. And of course, everybody, Michael J. White and everybody else um, did the voices for the, the characters. And it, I think it premiered in 2012. And I think it just finished. It was like 20 episodes. But yeah, they had the Black Dynamite cartoon. Wow. And then last one I, I really want to talk about as far as black exploitation wise is this year. Remember I mentioned Luke Cage from Marvel Comics? Yeah. He got his own show on Netflix that oh, premiered this year. Yeah. My, Which, did you watch it? No. Uh, just, just like the day that it came out, my Facebook was just like Luke Cage. Everyone was Luke Cage crazy. Right. So Luke Cage has been sort of front and center. But yep. yeah, he got his own show. Uh, I think he initially, as far as on Netflix, premiered in the Jessica Jones show from last year, but now he's got his own show. And fun fact on that, Black Dynamite music composer Adrian Young also does the music for this. Mm-hmm. So, oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. So he And I've listened to the soundtrack because I still haven't seen the series yet, but I want to see what the music's like. So it's kind of a 90s hip hop slash soul black exploitation mix like of that. music yeah. so it kind of gets that vibe so there's a lot of black exploitation vibe and of course it's luke cage the original black exploitation superhero right so these things are kind of coming back you know mm-hmm. i mean little by little they're or at least they're being repurposed for something else i mean yeah black dynamite is sort of parody but it's also a really good homage and you know luke cage yeah they managed to, to sort of combine the elements of black exploitation in the 70s with big issues like Black Lives Matter today. Yeah. You know, they're able to fuse that a little bit better. I thinking about this topic reminded me, and I'm trying to make a comparison here, but go with me on this. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of when you talked about cruising and how the protests against that movie when sure. it was being made and when it was released and how it's kind of been adopted, you know, with time, they kind of brought it into the fold or at least recognized, okay, there's some elements of it or it's it's ours now, right. you know, warts and all. And I think... A lot of black exploitation has been taken to give some time and distance. I think some of that has been looked at in a better light now. And if you look at this, and I think this whole series, this two part that I'm doing, the overall theme is cycles in black filmmaking. Yeah, sure. You know, the race films from the early 1900s came and went. You know, black exploitation came and went and influenced film. And then, you know, then we had this other renaissance with Spike Lee's and the John Singletons that kind of came and went. And, you know, it's just interesting how it keeps cycling back around. Yeah. So, uh, the question I think I have now is, you know, what's the black film renaissance now? Ugh, it's not good. The, I mean, as I'm sure you know, the Hollywood, you know, Oscar so racist, you know, thing is right. yeah. very real. And the disappointing thing is that, you know, Hollywood is this tight machine of producing films that they think will make money. And they don't think that black main characters will make money. So they just don't do it. You know, people constantly say, oh, well, you know, there were black movies that were made. It's just that they weren't Oscar contenders. And what I say is, no, movies should be made with characters and casting decisions should be casting decisions. And they're saying basically black actors and actresses are not bringing in money at the box office. So they cast all white characters. That's a problem. That is a problem. You know? But there just really isn't a huge outpouring of black cinema. I mean, it's not like the 90s, which I think was the last time sure. that you just yeah. had these films that were a lot to choose from, or at least a lot more than there are now. 
they're just not there. You know, right. yeah, it's we're, either we're they're in only a very white patch of, of right. Hollywood and unfortunately, the only black films are ones that are you know fences or prestige or mm-hmm. we kind of this is because we can't just make good solid entertainment or even just bombastic crazy shit. Right. I do think I've seen a little bit of a turn just because Moonlight is out right now. Um, Complex has just named it the right. number one movie of the year. IndieWire has as well. And I think that uh, Barry Jenkins might be able to pull this one out as best picture. I think we're turning a corner here. We just haven't seen it yet. Yeah, I, I agree. But um, I think this is where I'm closing this off. Okay. The only thing is I want to uh, add one thing. Uh, when I was in film school... They talked about the movie The Harder They Come, the yeah. Jimmy Cliff movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, religiously. Really? Uh, because I think it was such a huge black exploitation, you know, type. It was a, a Jamaican film, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. a Jamaican film. I had that in my notes, and I didn't really talk about it because yeah. I limited I mean, with two episodes, it was Well, it's limited funny, time. because when you look through history... It, I mean, it doesn't really have that much of a place of film history, but when you look at exploitation and cult films, it's one of the biggest ones ever right, made. Yeah. So it was an independent movie. Yeah. And and it was a black exploitation film. It was about a singer, a reggae singer in Jamaica who was basically an outlaw and he was like on the lam or right, whatever. Right, of course. Against and we the man. watched it. They must have mentioned it in every film class that I ever went to and really? we watched it numerous times. I had the soundtrack. It was fascinating that how popular it was. It was obviously catering to an audience that was very underrepresented at the time yeah. and you know has proved to be one of those lasting films you know especially in uh independent filmmaking so that was the only thing that i remembered you know oh, yeah, from film awesome. school i'm glad they're teaching didn't that mention. That's yeah. kick-ass. oh yeah gosh they talked about that movie the harder they come all the time and I, it was it's a terrific film yeah well i think that's where i'm going to end this topic i just want to say first of all there's a shitload of these movies out there a lot of them are on on youtube all the ones that i mentioned if they're free i'm going to put them on the site and even if they're not i'm going to have links for them they're really worth watching some aren't some are boring as fuck yeah, of course. but but some are just amazing i love this topic i love that you did it i think you did a great job covering it like really from top to bottom and i love that you talked about all the 90s films because those were such a part of my you know like young here, life yeah. as being a white country kid you know um, and I think you did a nice job of dealing with it in racial. I mean, we're in a really racially tense time right now, yeah. and and this is pertinent and a, and a pertinent issue. And I, I think you did a great job with it. Right, I love this episode. I hope our yeah. listeners enjoyed it too. Um, one last thing, just to talk about the enduring. You're gonna call me a honky? You fucking honky, <laughs> honky motherfucker. It's true. I mean, I could say the same thing about you, but you know, yeah, it's fair. But one lasting legacy of black exploitation is. That you remember the Mac and Players Ball? Mm-hmm. Well, there's an annual gathering of pimps that's held in Chicago that's called the Players Ball, okay. based off of this movie. Oh, and good. they name the pimp of the year every year. I think in 2011 it was in Hollywood, California. But yep, yeah, ever since the Mac, the Players Ball has been going on. I love that. There you go. All right. Black exploitation. Yeah, I love it. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to Slums of Film History. You can find us on the web at slumsoffilmhistory.com where you can find links to some of the movies we talked about today, along with pictures, videos, and additional resources. As well as Sunday Slum Day, our weekly recommendation for the best and sometimes worst films every Sunday night. If you want to keep up with us, we're on Facebook and Twitter where we share out a lot of additional content. And as always, please fact check us and let us know if we left anything out. We're not professionals, just two friends that love gross movies.
Goldie was the character's name, and he was a pimp. Mm-hmm. Or a pimp. A pimp. He was a pimp. Mm-hmm. His name is Goldie. It's a girl's name. Goldie, yeah. yeah girl's Whatever. Name. He's a um, pimp. Yeah. Pimp. Doesn't matter. Pimp. <laughs> it doesn't matter. He's a pimp slap you. 